Support for Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Brook Green Gardens, presenting Bruce Monroe Southern Light, an outdoor immersive exhibit featuring seven large-scale works of art and light. Now open Wednesday through Saturday evenings. Advanced tickets are required and are available at brookgreen.org. Hello and welcome to Spoleto Backstage. It's your ticket not only to a few of Spoleto Festival USA's most memorable performances, but also to some of the behind-the-scenes action and the personalities that have made it all possible. Even in this unprecedented year without a Spoleto Festival, a year without a lot of things, there's way more than enough to explore and enjoy from past seasons. Plus, plenty to catch up on when it comes to some of the festival's longtime stars and chamber music heavyweights. I'm Bradley Fuller, and I'm really excited to share with you some of a conversation I had with countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo, phenomenal singer, also a great speaker, and someone who just knows how to have a conversation. So stay right here on this podcast for some of that fun talk with Anthony. And also, some great music is coming your way as well. Great music that will be brought to you through some well, brought to you after some uh, insightful commentary through the man who always hosts the Chamber Music Series, who picks the pieces, who performs on quite a few of them, uh, the great personality and champion of Chamber Music, Jeff Nuttall. Jeff, how are you doing today? It's great to talk music with you, Bradley, and share some of these incredible performances and, and characters like ARC. ARC, yeah, I, I, I love the the way you can just make initials out of his name like that too. It just works so well, which is a, a good thing, I guess. When, when, you, when you're that good, you know, you need to have someone, some way to have shorthand for your name. Yeah, he is a very powerful presence and, and his fame is justified. Agreed, agreed. And, and again, really excited to hear some more from him a little bit later on after we have some instrumental selections to get things started. And speaking about... Uh, well, making initials out of names, one of the composers on today's program would have been known as, I believe, Mrs. H.H.A. Beach. Yeah, this is a great story about, well, specifically about the role of women and their place in society in the 1880s, 90s. Those were her husband's initials. Amy Beach was an accomplished pianist by all accounts, very gifted at an early age and also a great composer. But when she got married, her husband basically closed the lid on that and said, you can't travel and play concerts anymore. And if you're going to compose, you can do it, but you can't take lessons, which is remarkable. I mean, to think that that's maybe it wasn't the norm, but it was not uncommon in, in that day. So her career came to a standstill and she was self-taught as a composer from then on because she wasn't allowed to study or go to school or take private lessons in composition. So when her husband passed, she was released, so to speak, and went traveling around playing concerts and composing and had a successful career. But it's interesting to think if she had been born a man, how different things would be and, and how famous she might or he might have been in our, our minds today. Yeah, really. I mean, it's it's a, like a race that she had to start 10 seconds after everybody else was already well past the starting line. Um, 
but it is remarkable the music she was able to write even in such a climate. I mean, this is great late romantic stuff. And as an American, I'm glad that we can claim it for our country too. Absolutely. I mean, it's, I think it's exciting for people who have not heard this music or, or have not been aware of who Amy Beach was uh, to hear this quintet. Well, now the other figure on today's program is someone who doesn't need much more discovery, perhaps. Well, at least not for you, I guess, Jeff. <laughs> I think Haydn needs more discovery. I think Joseph Haydn is the most underrated composer in the history of Western music. And I'm constantly on the evangelical trail to uh, convince people of that fact. You know, Beethoven gets credit for being groundbreaking and shaking the, the cage, so to speak. Mozart gets all the credit for writing these great melodies and operas and being so fluent and precocious. And Haydn's just sort of this doddering old guy who taught them and was friends with them and wrote all these works. But it's never really considered to be on the same plane, I think it's safe to say, by many listeners and many musicians as Mozart and Beethoven. I, I'll take Haydn any day over either of those two. Yeah, so he does, he needs our help. Uh, and I think there's so many reasons I, you know, I try to discover like, why don't people get as excited about this music as I do? And it's a difficult task to figure out. And, but I think the important first step is that it's not Haydn's fault. Really important. And once you've come there, then you have to figure out, okay, what am I doing wrong as a performer? How am I not getting this across to people so that they get it? So they laugh and cry and are, are moved like audiences would have been in the day. And then how do you, well, train is the wrong word, but how do you open the eyes and ears of audiences to to accept this and to listen actively and to take part in, and be affected by it? I think that's our job as, as a performer. Both of those things are crucially important because the music is there's so much to it. There's so much there. There, there's so many things that we consider crucial in, in the act of music making that that Haydn brings for us. And and you know, with Haydn's career too. I mean, you mentioned maybe the story of his life isn't quite as exciting as someone like Mozart who died young, or, or Beethoven who struggled with the onset and and then you know very permanent presence of deafness. But Haydn's story, really, among all the composers, I mean, if you wanted to make a case for hey, you know, s slow, steady work wins the race. I think Haydn's life story is the shining example of that. I mean, here's someone who works for years outside of any type of, you know, European cultural center. You know, he's in this Esterhazy Palace out in present-day Hungary, far away from all the capital cities, and just working at his craft, you know, serving his patron, the, the Prince Esterhazy, and finally, you know, by the time he reaches older age, later in his career, 1790s, he starts having this international reputation, which has already preceded him by the time he shows up, for instance, in London and his 12 London symphonies, maybe his most celebrated of all right at the end of the set. I mean, this is like he's finally kind of reaping the benefits of this long, slow, steady career. That's well said, Bradley, but I think it's also important to note that you know, he was 40 years old when he wrote his first really groundbreaking string quartet. It wasn't, he wasn't a precocious young musician. He struggled. He played gigs, you know, at the back of beer houses to earn a living in Vienna as a young man. And it wasn't until he was in his, you know, late thirties that he got the job in Esterhazy. So it was much more traditional, as you say, um, musical life. And then being isolated like he was, he, although he did say being so isolated 
allowed or even forced me to become original. He didn't really have other influences out there in Estrahazi. He was asked and commanded to write a whole bunch of different music from operas to baritone trios. And while he was doing this, he was writing string quartets, which he wasn't asked to write, but he thought were important to write. And we were glad that he did. And, and then, as you say, the he got famous not from traveling or performing, but from publications sort of emanating from Esterhazy. So by the time he went to London in the 1790s, any musician worth his salt had experienced Haydn through some of these published uh, symphonies or string quartets. Let's head now to this concert from the Spoleto Festival USA Chamber Music Series, going all the way back to 2012, Program 2, where you're sharing not only your love for Haydn, but you're also filling the audience in on uh, one of Haydn's colleagues who really helped get the music out there. Yeah, that's uh, Jan Peter Solomon, who uh, was responsible for Haydn coming to London at, at all, and then also for as you'll hear, making these arrangements of the 12 London symphonies. As you probably know, I'm slightly addicted to Haydn, and we don't get to play Haydn symphonies. And the symphonies, most of you know, contain some of his most inspired music, especially the late symphonies. So here's the story. He went to London. He was brought to London because... In the 1790s, uh, Joseph Haydn was king. He was the, by far the most famous and popular artist on the planet. And Frank Peter Solomon, a great violinist in his own right, but also a very brilliant concert promoter, convinced Haydn, with lots of money, to come twice to London for about six months each time in, in the 1790s. And he also not only had him come and play and conduct and lead, but he wrote six new symphonies for each visit, as well as new quartets and songs and everything else. So it was this Haydn extravaganza celebration, and it was wildly received. The excitement was palpable. It was front-page news when the new symphony was performed. Here, here's a review of the clock symphony that you're about to hear, which I think really sums it up beautifully. As usual, 1794, as usual, the most delicious part of the entertainment was a new grand symphony by Haydn. The inexhaustible, the wonderful, the sublime Haydn. <laughs> I love this guy. The first two movements were encored. You know what that means. Like during the premiere of the symphony, you all clapped so much that we played the whole movement again during the performance. <laughs> if you can imagine, that was sort of common practice. So first two movements, they went wild after the thing. They had to play it again to shut them up. First two movements were encored, and the character that pervaded the whole composition was heartfelt joy. Every new symphony he writes, we fear, till it is heard, he can only repeat himself, and we are every time mistaken. So this was the extent of Haydn's power over audiences in London, and he made, along with Solomon, a lot of money. If you imagine presenting a Haydn symphony, yeah, we can really make a lot of money doing that. <laughs> But they were so successful that Solomon convinced Haydn to release the rights to these 12 London symphonies so that he could basically get them out there in different forms in order to make money. So imagine you went to the concert and you want to go online and hear that, that symphony that you just heard. 
that was, of course, not happening in 1794. So a way to get these out there was to make arrangements. So Solomon made two different arrangements. The first was for piano trio, just piano, violin, and cello, of all 12 symphonies, just so people could get them in their homes and hang out and play them for fun. Uh, that wasn't the most successful rendition of a symphonic texture. So he decided, and this was really quite groundbreaking, to arrange them for a quintet with flute, so string quartet, flute, and keyboard. Uh, and that was the second set, and these were all uh, published and made lots of money through the 1820s and 30s because it allowed people in their own homes uh, have people over, have dinner, and read through some Haydn symphonies with your friends. <laughs> and these arrangements made it possible for us to play the clock symphony for you today. Um, can you tell I'm rather excited? I'm, I'm going to go get my... <laughs> I'm going to get my violin. So we could easily be in a Charleston living room in 1810. These were brought over to America. Uh, come join the party. We have Tara Helen O'Connor, the rest of the St. Lawrence Quartet. Tony Manzo joining us for the first time on bass, yeah. If anyone else would like to sign up for the Tony Fan Club, uh, it's uh, easily accessible online. And Enon Barnaton uh, on the piano. So we have four movements, a slow introduction, very, very much akin to the creation opening. It's sort of murky and unclear. And, and then the presto, exuberant, ebullient first movement, marked presto. And then the reason it's named the clock, the second movement, uh, not Haydn's name, but it does sound very clockwork-like. And it's, uh, you will instantly recognize. I'm hoping for size of recognition when we start that, <laughs> that movement. Uh, the minuet, the third movement, traditional minuet and trio. And as the story goes, the trio section, you know, the, we all expert trio people now, minuet trio people, right? A, B, A form. So we have the boisterous minuet dance movement, contrasting middle section, the B section. And supposedly Haydn was inspired, or <laughs> maybe inspired is the wrong word, but he heard street musicians playing a lot in London. And supposedly he heard a lot of not so good playing on the street. <laughs> You know, that the tune wouldn't quite line up with the accompaniment sort of thing. And so in the trio, which is a flute solo, you hear Tara playing in the backup band, not changing the harmony, just getting completely lost. <laughs> and it's a great moment. And just so you know, it's not us. It's, it's actually... <laughs> so it's in there, and it's Haydn sort of winking at you. And, and then the, the finale, Rondo Molto Vivace. So here's the clock.
We're moving in a completely different direction to that steamy, romantic world of the late 1800s. And Amy Beach, it's an interesting story. She was born in the 1850s in New Hampshire, and by all accounts was one of the most precocious musicians in history. She could sing supposedly 40 songs by memory at age one. Was, I mean, I have kids, and that, you know, 
he, and at two, she could harmonize. Her mom could sing a melody, and she could sing a counter melody to that melody. She was reading and reading music and composing at age four and five. She was a remarkable pianist and played with the Boston Symphony as a 14-year-old. The problem was, um, if she had been a man, she'd probably be really famous right now. But as a woman in the 1850s and following, it was really hard to have a public life. Your private life was it. You get married, mind your own business. You definitely don't go out in public and play concerts. Very rare. So Amy Beach broke that down. She was really the first successful American woman composer. She did, however, get married as an 18-year-old to a doctor 24 years her senior. And he said, Amy, you're not playing any concerts anymore. Pretty amazing, actually. So she, she got to play one concert a year while she was married, and the proceeds had to be given to charity. She was allowed to compose, and she turned to that much more than her performing. Interestingly, when her husband died in 1910, she let loose and went to Europe for three years. <laughs> That's girl power for you. Um, she was a successful concert pianist after all those years of being married, went back to it. This piece was written in 1908, the last years of her marriage. Uh, exquisitely beautiful, virtuosic for the piano, written for herself. She played the premiere, uh, but in that language of late romanticism, it's really lush music that I'm willing to bet that very few of you have heard, and that's not fair. So we're here to make things right and play it today. So please welcome back to the festival Peja Mutsievich at the piano and the St. Lawrence String Quartet. So there are three movements, not the traditional four, a slow introduction and then a swirling first movement, a beautiful muted slow movement with a huge climax in the middle, and then a rollicking, flashy, virtuosic final movement, molto vivace. Thank you. 
The St. Lawrence String Quartet, pianist Pedro Mutsiewicz, live from the Dock Street Theater stage in Charleston, South Carolina. That was Amy Beach, piano quintet in F-sharp minor, opus 67. I'm Jeff Nuttall, and it just reminds me of the joys of meeting people, playing together with friends, making music. Pedro Mutsiewicz, one of my oldest friends and collaborators, it's just such a special thing to be able to hang out and share, not each other, but the, the music with our audiences in Charleston. And now over the airwaves, one of the other characters that uh, we've been introduced to through the years is the incredible countertenor, Anthony Roth Costanzo, one of those figures larger than life in so many ways, both personally and musically. And I know, Bradley, you had a chance to uh, catch up with him. I did, and larger than life is right. Really an incredible music maker, compelling weather singing, Handel's Ombra Mai Fu on stage, as I was listening to the other day, just sitting there spellbound, or a piece from much more recent times. And Anthony's also compelling as a speaker and as an advocate for the arts and music. So I'm really excited to share now part of the conversation I had with Anthony Roth Costanzo, who joined me recently from New York. Anthony, really great to have you again. Thanks so much for having me. The Spoleto Festival USA Chamber Music Series was one of the items on your schedule for 2020. Now, it would have been far from your first time performing for the festival because you made your Spoleto debut when? I actually made my debut at Spoleto, I think it was in 2001, so 19 years ago. I mean, it seems wild, but it was one of my first professional gigs as an opera singer, and I was singing The First Witch and Second Woman in Purcell's Dido and Aeneas at the Dock Street Theater. So it feels like a second home to me in some ways, and I've come there to do chamber music for the past, I think it was seven years in a row. Did you make any special connections with other performers or any musical discoveries thanks to the festival? So many, so many. The the chamber music program there is unbelievable. And all of the musicians I've met have become colleagues and friends. I was first brought there by James Austin Smith, the incredible oboe player, who introduced me to Jeff Nuttall. And we all hit it off right away. And so I feel like these are my musical compatriots. And I look forward to showing them my wares every year that I've accumulated over the course of the year. And also having them induct me into whatever new worlds they want to explore. So we've done new premieres written for us by composers. We've gone deep into the Baroque all the way back to Dowland. And, you know, we've even returned to Purcell, to Dido and Aeneas, where I sang Dido's Lament last year, I think. And that was not the role I was playing when I first came to Spoleto. So it was fun to sing that in Dock Street. Now, what were you planning to perform for this year's festival? Gosh, we had so many things on the docket, and I'm trying to remember what they all are. It feels like a blur, but there was a composer, I believe her name is Jessica Meyer, who's going to be in residence, and we were going to premiere a new piece of hers. So that was very exciting, as well as a whole slew of Baroque ideas that we had put together, and even some more popular tunes, as is our want. Early on with Jeff, we had the idea of doing Roy Orbison's Crying. And um, that turned out to be a kind of runaway hit and people really loved it. So since then, we found different ways to do things from Gershwin to even more popular. And so we like to push the boundaries with that every year. Now, Spoleto Festival USA is, of course, one engagement among many in, in a normal year with, with no pandemic. And recently, you were maybe in one of these more spotlighted roles you were just talking about, uh, the title role 
of the Mets production of Philip Glass's Akhenaten, right? Yes, exactly. One of the highlights of my career, for sure. What was it like performing in this? I mean, any any reflections, you know, now that it's recently passed, but but still there pretty close in the rearview mirror? It was just, a, it's a spectacular production. It's an amazing piece that Philip Glass wrote in the 80s, and it had never made it to the Met. Um, and it hadn't, in fact, had the life of something like Einstein on the beach. So it has Philip Glass's classic minimalism. It's one of the trilogy operas. He first wrote Einstein, then Satyagraha, and then this Akhenaten. And it's about the ancient Egyptian pharaoh who was probably the first monotheist and worshipped the sun. And around that, the imagery that was created, the arpeggios you can imagine in A minor, and the the sort of um, mesmeric trance that the audience found themselves in was so exciting and thrilling that we actually, in a rare feat, sold out the Metropolitan Opera, all the performances. And that's something that I never expected to do. I didn't even in my wildest dreams ever think I'd be the title role in a new production at the Met, but at that, to sell it out was thrilling. Is there a different headspace you go into for something like Glasses Akhenaten compared to, say, an opera like Gluck's Orfeo ed Eurydice? It's a good question. I do think that in order to do any opera, you have to keep 10% of your brain focused on a technical aspect, whether it is vocal or whether it's counting the number of repeats in, in that scene. You can't fully delve into a scene the way an actor in a play might, because they're determining their own tempo, their own time, and uh, you know they can lose themselves a little more. We have to keep our eye on the conductor. We have to keep our mind fresh. And we have to remember that a high G is coming up and you know we should alter the position of our tongue or whatever it may be. So in both of those operas, I have to stay alert and stay aware of what's going on. But in different ways, I think, um, Gluck's Orfeo requires a kind of virtuosity of tone and a kind of acuteness of perception as you dispatch these recits, which are so meaningful, in order to keep the audience engaged. In the glass, you have to keep the clarity of thought going through all of these repetitions and all of these arpeggios that happen. Otherwise, the audience can drift away from you and you want them to drift towards you, but stay in that sort of trance-like state. Well, you're very much at home with bringing on those different styles of your 2018 Grammy-nominated album, ARC, Glass Handle, I mean, that was a, a perfect combination of Baroque and more contemporary music. Absolutely. And these are the two ends of the spectrum that as a countertenor, a man who sings in a in a sort of glorified falsetto voice, those that's where I live before 1750 and after 1950 for the most part. So I love to bring those two things together. And in fact, there's something in the purity of those two kinds of music and also in the kind of abstraction. You know, Baroque music is a lot about psychology. The action takes place in the recits and the more spoken part, but within the arias, within the songs themselves. There's a kind of psychological abstraction. It goes into the character's head. And similarly, when we get to modern music and we get to contemporary music, it's much more abstract than a lot of these other Verismo opera powerhouses that we're used to. Absolutely. Well, if we could go back a little bit, when did you discover that being a countertenor was the route you should take as opposed to say, you know, could you just have been a tenor? You know, I was a boy soprano and I began singing in musical theater, made it to Broadway. And then when I did my first opera when I was 13, Benjamin Britten's The Turn of the Screw, 
I had some colleagues who were singing with me say, you know, you might be a countertenor. And I had no idea what that was. So I just kept singing high. You know, there was no reason to stop. No one said you should sound like a man. My parents were very open-minded about it. And by the time I was 15, I was still singing high. And in fact, I was a countertenor. So I never really looked back. I always sang in the treble clef. And of course, I had a lot to figure out how to make it sound good, how to navigate certain registers. But it has always come naturally to me in a certain way. But like any voice, it's a combination of nature and nurture, right? There has to be some skill and facility there to begin with. But then it depends how hard you work to hone that skill and to make it truly beautiful and a layered art form. Definitely. And and I think it's great you said you, you didn't encounter pushback for that because I think I can remember back, I mean, just something as simple as, you know, middle school chorus or something. But some of the guys in class would, would try to sing way lower than their voice was at that point, you know, because this was quote unquote how, you know, they should be singing. And, you know, the teacher had had to explain, you know, actually men who can sing high are, are the ones who really go far with singing. So, you know, stop trying to, you know, do this with, with your voice, which, and it just sounds horrible too, but... It's true. And, you know, it's it's interesting. There is such a stigma to singing high, but there are a couple of ways in which gender and pitch in the Baroque period did not match up. You know, when Handel was writing Julius Caesar, people were so accustomed to the power of the high voice and the way in which it commanded a kind of attention and respect that instead of casting Julius Caesar as a bass or a baritone, he casts it as a castrato, a high-voiced male. And similarly, when we get to the 20th century and the 21st century, we have people like the Bee Gees and Michael Jackson, the lately departed little Richard, Justin Timberlake, Prince, you know, all of these men who sing really high. And it's not effeminizing, but rather empowering. For sure. And and, and that reminds me, you know, this this idea of certain roles, say operatic roles, where the soprano is typically the damsel in distress. You know, the mezzo is like the scullery maid. The the bass is sometimes the villain, the bad guy. What roles does the countertenor often have, you know, to, to pick from? It's interesting to think about because the countertenor in the Baroque period was often the hero and the lover. And I think a lot of that comes from this sense that when we didn't have any amplification, a high voice cuts through a theater, not necessarily because it's louder in volume, but because the frequencies fly through that theater in a totally different way. And so it was like hearing a trumpet rip through the space. That must have been so exciting in that time and must have felt heroic and had the ability to elicit pathos in the way that lovers needed to. But the countertenor was first put in operas in the 1950s by Benjamin Britten. That's our modern day exponent. And so before the countertenor returned to the Baroque, there was all of these roles being written by Britten and they were generally the role of the other, you know, the outsider, the mysterious one, whether it was the god Apollo in Death in Venice or Oberon, the king of the fairies in A Midsummer Night's Dream. That is the standard that was set. And to a certain extent, that has been true in many new operas that are written. If you look at Jonathan Dove's Flight, even the lead role in that is a character who's an outsider. And generally, there's something off. Akhenaten was someone who thought totally different, a revolutionary, a visionary. And so there was something that had to distinguish that 
sound from everyone else. And that's what a countertenor has been applied to. I'm excited to see where opera takes the countertenor voice. Will we be playing fathers and lovers and heroes once again, as we did in the Baroque period? Well, to shift more to the immediate present, how have things been for you during these strange times? I mean, I I guess that a virus which threatens healthy breathing might be especially worrisome to a singer like yourself. Well, it is, of course, and it's been a very difficult time in many ways, but I do think singers sort of have some tools that they should share with other people, which is how to breathe well and how to expand your lungs. You know, this is something I've been thinking about. Doctors are doing breathing exercises with patients who have COVID, and I think that the way we breathe as singers has been proven to expand the lungs, and it's the kind of exercises that the doctors must be doing. So we're well-equipped for it in that way. What we're not well-equipped for is to have a career in these times. I think I must have had 40 or 50 performances canceled so far, and of course that's devastating, but what we also have to remember is it presents a great opportunity. I wrote an article in June's Opera News magazine about the ways in which this pause button that life has presented us with is a moment for the arts in this country to reform in ways that they've needed to reform for a long, long time. Of course, we've all been going along and enjoying everything that we were able to present, but there have been some problems that have prevented us from being more a part of mainstream culture, from having different streams of revenue, from prioritizing risk and innovation in ways which will bring in new audiences. And this is a moment to really rethink how we're presenting the arts, how we're structuring them, and how we're going to rebuild them. Well, aside from writing articles, are there any projects in that vein that you've been working on here lately? You know, I tallied it up the other day and I've been working on almost 40 projects so far in quarantine. So too many projects is the answer. Now, unfortunately, not all of those are paid projects, but they're projects of great love that I'm doing with different institutions, be they teaching for Princeton, Juilliard, UCLA, Bard, etc., or be they creating videos for the likes of the Guggenheim or a multimedia fashion company called Visionaire, trying to come up with different ways to connect to music, to create content that's of a high aesthetic value and artistic value. And more importantly, to talk to colleagues, to talk to young people, to talk to old people about how we can use this moment in ways that are really advantageous to our art form. So I think I've been probably more busy than ever in a way because there's nothing to stop you these days, right? Normally you have to go to a show, you have to go to a gala, you have to have lunch, you have a meeting here, a meeting there. You have a sense of going out to a performance, coming home and needing to unwind. But when you're in the house all day, I find myself working often until 1 or 2 a.m. just straight through the day because there's a lot to do. And for me, I feel like this isn't a time to relax and reset but rather to work harder than we've ever worked before to create new futures. Well, Anthony, hats off to you for replacing those canceled engagements, basically one-to-one with all those new projects. I think you said 40 on both ends. So well done there. And thanks so much for sharing today. It was really great having you again. Oh my God. I love that guy. Anthony Rothkostanzo, he has such a power. He has such a control over time and space when he's on stage or even in rehearsal. It's It's an amazing gift. Spoleto Backstage is made possible in part by Bank of America and the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. Special thanks to Spoleto Festival USA, 
The engineer for this podcast is Duke Marcos. The producer is A.T. Shire. The executive producer is Sherry Hutchinson. I'm Bradley Fuller. I'm Jeff Nuttall. And until next time, take care.